Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. Our guest today on the Resilient Surgeon podcast is Dr. Anna Lemke, and the topic is addiction. Of course, when most of us think of addiction, our minds go to those struggling with hard or serious addictions like alcohol, narcotics, and other powerful drugs that are well known to destroy the lives of those addicted and the lives of their loved ones and family in addition to the pernicious impact on friends and work colleagues. But as Anna points out in her brilliant, warm, incredibly accessible and very human book, Dopamine Nation, quote, softer forms of addiction, such as our digital drugs like the iPhone, social media, online gambling, food, sugar, sex, the list of modern possibilities is endless. Well, these softer forms of addiction can be equally destructive to our well-being and to our relationships. What is so incredible about Anna's book, Dopamine Nation, is her broad approach to the issue of addiction and how virtually every one of us is almost certain to face the challenge, either personally or with someone we love or care about, and how those who have been broken by addiction and who have recovered can be such a rich source of wisdom for a better way to live which is why this podcast is so important for all of us and for our loved ones. Dr. Lepke is a psychiatrist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, and she's the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Clinic. In 2016, she wrote the book, Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop a book that the New York Times selected as one of the top five books to understand the opioid epidemic. Anna also appeared with her teenage children, James and Mary, on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, a riveting and disturbing look at the impact of social media on our lives. Welcome, Anna, to the Resilient Surgeon podcast. It's a tremendous honor to have you here with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, uh, as our as our audience knows from the introduction, you've written a book called Dopamine Nation. And I want to just comment briefly on your book uh, relative to my story. And as many people know, and I've been very open about this, about my previous uh, addiction to prescription narcotics about 12 years ago, you know, and as we're going to talk a little bit about this, uh, you know, shame is a big part of addiction. Uh, and, you know, that persists to this day. But in reading your book, the warmth and humanity that came through in that book, and particularly for somebody like me or anybody struggling with addiction, I just want them to know this, that if you read the, your book, Dopamine Nation, you will come away with a sense that you know, maybe you've got something special going for you. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And I really exactly. mean that, you know, uh, yeah. it's the 
truly the first time where I actually felt like, and I've always known this, that my struggle with the addiction was a profound sense of brokenness in that. But, you know, uh, for you to frame it like that as somebody that can teach people how to live mm. was remarkable. And it's in a way I've, it, it was just really remarkable. So I just like you to kind of, if you could talk about your experience with addiction and people who have struggled with addiction and recovered and how that's had such a profound influence on how you view, view the world, because that just penetrates the entire substance of your book. Yeah. Well, well thank you for that. Uh, that's very moving for me and very gratifying. Um, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I have learned so much from people in recovery. As I talk about in the book, um, to my shock, I, I thought I was immune to the problem of addiction. Um, you know, alcohol, the, the few drugs that I tried never really were particularly reinforcing for me. So I thought, oh, well, whatever that gene is, I didn't get it. Uh, but somewhere in my early 40s, I actually got addicted to romance novels. And people often, you know, think I'm joking or it is kind of humorous. But I, I really did develop um, a minor addiction. It was facilitated by getting a Kindle or an e-reader. Um, do you hear a wind noise going? Or a static noise? Okay. I just want to make sure. I'm not hearing it now, but it was in between. I just want to make sure it's it's not on both of our ends. Anyway, are you editing this? Hopefully you're, you'll go back and edit it so you can edit They will be, out. yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so um, anyways, much to my surprise, I developed this compulsive orientation to this specific genre of escape fiction. And, you know, it's not to trivialize severe life-threatening addiction by comparing it to my own, but what it was fascinating for me to observe myself engaging in these same uh, behaviors and progressing in those behaviors to a point and not being at all aware of it. Yes. And we always, we talk about this, you know, the phenomenon of denial, but for someone who's never experienced addiction, it's hard to imagine how it happens because you just think, well, you know what you're doing, and so why don't you just stop? Yes, I'm well <laughs> acquainted with that. Right. <laughs> but it's such a tricky phenomenon where the, the behavior, frankly, just works well enough for long enough that it becomes automatic. Yeah. And we also become very poor observers of the true consequences of the behavior. And it's that that gap between the the consequences of the behavior and the behavior itself, as well as our continuing to try to recapture the efficacy of the behavior at, at its inception, that really drives us to this place that we never expected we, we would end up. Yeah. Um, and and so that that you know that gave me a, that was sort of an aha moment for me because I really do think that. Although I have many of my own psychological problems, I don't think I inherited a heavy load for addiction. And yet I became addicted, which I think speaks to the drugification of everyday life in the modern yeah. world mm -hmm. and the way that we're all so much more vulnerable to addiction and also how people in recovery from life-threatening addictions are modern-day prophets for all of us 
living in this drugified world because now, you know, compulsive overconsumption is a problem for everybody. There's nobody who's, you know, whether your drug is social media or online chess or pornography or work or food, like we've all got something now. And so, you know, kind of seeing people with addiction in recovery as people who have been able to corner a very specific type of wisdom that we all need is essentially what, you know, what the book is about. Yeah. And that's, that's beautiful because what I understand you to be saying is that through the severe experiences of even of, of people that have been in my, my circumstances, right. for example, there's a lot of wisdom for even these quote, softer sorts of addictions. Exactly. And I, I really do mean quote, because they can be very destructive too. Yes. yes. You know, um, and yours, let's just talk a little bit, if, if you can, about the definition of addiction. What, what, what is that? And when do you, you know, rip, trip that cord and fall into that? What's the breaking point? And, and I think just emphasizing how your story highlights the sort of pernicious nature of some of these softer softer problems or yes. softer addictions. Yeah. So addiction is a complex biopsychosocial disease. So there's a biological component, there's a psychological component, and there's a social contextual environment environmental component. Broadly defined, addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Now, when and where we cross that line into harm is sometimes a judgment call, but I can tell you that it's the addicted person who's going to be the last to see it. Yes. Um, (laughs) When we think about um, the diagnosis or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, there are 11 criteria. They're hard to remember, but they can be condensed into the three C's, which are um, control, compulsion, and consequences. So when we see those, we're entering addiction land. Control Mm -hmm. means repeatedly trying to cut back and not being able to, using in quantities and frequencies um, more than what was planned or intended. Yes. Um, Compulsion has to do with the level of automaticity, this kind of hijacked brain phenomenon. I said I was going to stop. I wasn't going to use today. And then finding ourselves almost in a dissociated state, just reaching for that drug. A lot of mental real estate occupied with thinking about the drug, using the drug, hiding drug use. That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. finally, it's the consequences that come from the drug use, which maybe we see, maybe we don't. It can be health consequences, uh, job consequences, relationship consequences, you you name it. It's, it's, it's all over the map. What I'm particularly fascinated by is the more subtle psychological consequences, like increased depression, anxiety, irritability. We see a lot of patients who come in for those problems who on screening we discover actually have an addiction problem. And sometimes the first intervention we'll do is target the addiction because by targeting the addictive behaviors, sometimes all of those other psychiatric problems resolve spontaneously because they're essentially downstream effects. Yes, yes. You know, um, if we could cover uh, some of the physiology, the dopamine physiology, Uh, and particularly one of the revelations for me in understanding dopamine and its role in addiction was the motivation piece when it drops below baseline. So if you could kind of enlighten us a little on a, on a broad level about how dopamine plays such a central role in this entire process. 
Yeah, so dopamine was discovered as a human brain neurotransmitter in the 1950s. Um, since then, there's been an explosion of research on dopamine. It is essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. And it may be even more important for motivation than it is for pleasure. There's a famous experiment in, in which rats were engineered to have no dopamine receptors. And what the researchers discovered is that, that if they put food in the rat's mouth, the rat would eat the food and seem to get pleasure from the food. But if they put the food some distance away, the rat would starve to death. In other words, we need dopamine. We shouldn't vilify dopamine. It's what allows us to have the motivation to do the work to get the things that we need to survive. That's just so remarkable. Just let's picture rat dying rather than going to food within, within reach. That's right. That's right. I mean, extraordinary. Yeah, it it is right. Yeah. So dopamine is, is is dopamine is our friend, okay? Because I like to frame that. I like say, oh, dope, so terrible. You get addicted to dopamine, but what we what we it's important to recognize is that our dopamine reward system, because there's a dedicated pathway in the brain that's been uh, discovered, consisting broadly of the prefrontal cortex, the ventral tegmental area, and the nucleus accumbens. And that reward system evolved over millions of years of evolution for a world of scarcity, which means that the dopamine processing in that reward pathway was intended for a world in which we have to work very, very hard up front to get a little bit of the basic things that we need to survive. The reason that's important is because if you contrast that with the world we live in now, in which just by swiping right or swiping left, we can have all kinds of different sources of dopamine delivered to our doorstep, you can appreciate the ways in which it is very difficult to be a modern human. Because this reward pathway was not designed for sudden onset, huge surges of dopamine, which is what we get today from the food we eat the things we buy, the way we spend time online, the alcohol we drink, the pills we take. You We're that. swimming We're in sw stimuli. Swimming in <clears throat> Dopamine swimming stimuli. In right. Yeah. And so to understand what happens in the brain as we become addicted, it's essential to know that pleasure and pain are processed in the same part of the brain. They're co-located and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So imagine there's a teeter-totter or a seesaw in your brain when it's at rest that beam on that central fulcrum is level with the ground. That's known as homeostasis. When we do something that's pleasurable, it tilts one way. When we experience pain, it tilts the other. But the overarching rule governing that balance is that it wants to remain level. And our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance after any deviation from that neutral position. The Which it does with is, every physiologic process. Yes. Let, let's just... Right. Be, Clear. Right. This is this is standard material for human physiology. Yeah, yeah. all living organisms, all yes. living organisms have a drive for homeostasis. That's right. I mean, and, and it's an overwhelming drive, right? It's like mm -hmm. a law of the universe. But what happens in humans is that the way that our pleasure-pain balance is put back to that neutral position once we've tilted it one way or another is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So if I eat a piece of chocolate. That releases a little bit of dopamine in my reward pathway. My balance tilts to the side of pleasure. No sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to that increased dopamine by down-regulating my dopamine transmission, my dopamine produ production, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. 
I like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted and equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That is the come down, the after effect, the hangover, or that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate. Mm-hmm. Now, in a world of plenty where I can have a whole box of chocolate right in front of me, it is going to be very, very difficult for me not to reach for another piece of chocolate in that context. If I'm able to exert the discipline and the willpower, which by the way, is not an infinite resource, then then those gremlins will hop off and homeostasis will be restored, at least temporarily. But if in this world of plenty, I continue to consume whatever my reinforcing substance or behavior is, what happens I I accumulate more and more gremlins on the pain side of the balance until they're effectively camped out there, tents and barbecues in tow. And now I'm in a chronic dopamine deficit state, which is not easily reversible, even with days of abstinence. Those gremlins, they like it on the balance and they don't want to get off. And that is the addicted brain. Once people become addicted, they're walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain Now they need to use in ever more more potent forms and greater quantities, not to get high, but just (laughs) to balance and feel normal. And when they're not using, they're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which in addition to physiologic symptoms are also anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Imagine that you had a terrible, terrible itch and you couldn't scratch it. You would find yourself scratching it in the middle of the night in your sleep. That is what happens in severe addiction. That's where we lose the autonomy. The overwhelming physiologic drive to use as a way to fix the balance and restore restore homeostasis takes over our entire being. Yeah, I am all too familiar with that. And I think it's really worth emphasizing that and I'd like to think about this when I'm experiencing a craving of any kind that, you know, you get it, you get, you smell a, a croissant, uh, you, you don't get it or you eat it. And then the come down and the dopamine goes down below baseline levels. Correct. Right. Right. That's right. And it's the come down. And then that happens repeatedly, repeatedly. If, right. And if you're stimulating and throwing more in, more in, more in the come down just becomes more and more and the pleasure is reduced. And this, um, and experientially, chocolate. I mean, you ate bunnies. You ate a lot of your right, kids' bunnies. Right, right. I ate my. I stole it's my kids' one. chocolate Easter bunnies, and then I lied about it. Yep, <laughs> it's a wonderful story. Uh, but you know that chocolate bunny thing and the telephone or the iPhone and these kinds of things. You know, we think they're sort of trivial, and you're uh, sort of. Uh, it was kind of an addiction to romance novels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the very same process is occurring, and I just really want to emphasize that this is not the land of hardcore drug at drug right. addicts. It's all of us de- right. dealing with, as you call it, this overabundance process. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, and you know, your point there that with repeated exposure, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter. But that after response gets stronger and longer. And you might ask, well, why would Mother Nature create a system in which every pleasure then is going to be fleeting and is going to be followed by pain? But that's a wonderful system in a world of scarcity, right? Because that makes us the ultimate seekers, never satisfied with what we have, always looking for more. And that's why I, I always think of mental illness as 
not in the person, but in the relationship between the person and the environment that they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about people with severe addictions that way, what you realize is that, you know, thousands of years ago, people with that genetic wiring were like key to survival in your tribe because those are the people that were willing to work harder, you know, run further, fight more to get that tiny little bit of dopamine that would keep us all alive. The problem is it's horribly mismatched for the modern ecosystem. Instead of a side note, do are there sort of dopamine personalities? I mean, I certainly have some close friends and I would consider myself uh, to have been one. I, yeah. I've worked hard to moderate that, right. you know, after my experience. But is is this something you think does exist? Absolutely. So this used to be referred to as the addictive personality. Now we try to use more medicalized language along the lines of this person has a heavy genetic load for addiction mm-hmm. or has a lot of uh, vulnerability for the disease of addiction. We do know that people come into this world with differing degrees of vulnerability to the problem of addiction, and that some people just innately from the get-go, you know, have a lot of vulnerability to this addiction cycle, such that they get easily addicted to a lot of different things. When they're able to give up one thing, those types of behaviors transfer to something else. And those are the people who typically will develop severe life-threatening addictions and who have to make a serious life commitment to recovery in order to stay in recovery. But again, to me, those are the prophets, right? Those are both the people who a thousand years ago would have been the saviors of the tribe. Yeah, right. And today have the potential to be sources of great wisdom. So in some Mm -hmm. sense, saviors also today, as long as they make this full bore commitment to recovery, which they need to as a matter of life and death, right? Me and my escape fiction and my chocolate problem, whatever, I mean, it wasn't going to kill me. You know what I mean? And I didn't need professional intervention to sort of shift course. Um, Although it was hard and it was a bona fide, as you call soft addiction, but people with, you know, really who inherit this serious genetic load, I mean, this it's life and death for them. It's not messing around. It's going to kill them if they don't find a way to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that you talk about in the book is this process of I guess it's it's exhausting avoiding yourself all the time. Right. Can you elaborate on that and how that feeds into this process of becoming addicted even to things like romance novels? Because you talked yeah. about your own experience in that regard. Yeah. Well, you know, people use substances for and, and other behaviors for, for a variety of reasons, but one of the most common reasons is just to escape my own thoughts and feelings. Like mm-hmm. I just, I'm so tired of myself, right? And thinking yes. thoughts yes. and having these, I just, I just want to be not in my own brain and body for a while, which is really an interesting thing. Like, why is it that we are so desperate to escape ourselves? My personal hypothesis about that is that we live in in a time of endemic narcissism where we are so focused on the individual self and individual achievement um, that, that it becomes like the centerpiece of our lives. 
to our detriment. Whereas I would argue, and not that everything was better in the past when people died when they were 30, you know, right. yeah. 300. No, we're not, we're not or, making pain. It's not like, yay, yeah. you know, I really. wish I lived 500 years ago, but some things really were better. But, you know, this, especially in the West, uh, as opposed to Eastern cultures, this focus on the individual and individual achievement, it comes at a very high cost. And I think that cost is that we feel separate and we are constantly ruminating about ourselves instead of feeling this sense of being merged with other people, which yeah. is how, how people probably were evolved. You know, we're, we're evolved to be sort of not really even distinguished in any particular way, but to be moving around with our group and never separate. But life today is constantly separate. Even if you have a family, you leave that family to go to work. You know, you travel separately from your family. Your kids go off to school. You and your spouse have different, you know, there's no, there's no work focused around the home and family. It's this constant separation, this focus on individual achievement, a real promotion of this kind of narcissistic orientation, which I think fuels our need to escape ourselves. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. I remember after get, I was spent three months at Hazelden, um, and, um, I remember thinking after I left Hazeland, because, you know, having been a juvenile delinquent and in a lot of trouble coming from such a broken home, I believed in the American dream. I mean, to my core and because of the opportunities that it afforded me. But in a sense, after I got out of Hazeland, I realized that I got sold a bit of a false bill of goods. And I think this is a testimony to what you're talking about, you know, right. this this pursuit of success and, mm -hmm. and all these things, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is pernicious and it's slowly pernicious over years. Uh, so anyway, I think that's right. I have, I have a question for you. I'm curious, yeah. given that your difficult childhood and this early start where you were in, in trouble with the criminal justice system, how did you go from there to getting into medical school and becoming a surgeon? Like what, what did you do to make cause that? That's a huge, <laughs> right. That's a yeah. big leap. Yeah, it was, a, and I guess maybe this is dopamine, I don't know, but I uh, I, uh, I was in the Navy, I joined the Navy to avoid going to prison. And one night I was on the back of the aircraft carrier, we were out at sea, and it was during the Vietnam War, and I was smoking a joint like everybody else on the <laughs> ship. It was awful. And I realized, you know, I was chipping paint in the Navy, right? And I realized either I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life, or yeah. I'm going to continue to get in trouble, which I was in the Navy. And I'm going to end up in prison, which was not a good place for me, or I got to go to school. And it became that simple in a sense. It wasn't easy, but I got out, you know, and I got a job as a janitor and then I got my GED. Uh, and then I enrolled in a, a junior college, you know, where all the misfits were. And I just started, <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, it, yeah, back yeah. in those days, junior colleges yeah. were for, yeah. you know, the losers in a sense. Right. And, yeah. and I just slowly crawled my way it i had to hire private tutors and i you know i, I met people who had a huge impact on me you know mm -hmm. as part of this process so it was not in any way or shape uh that i was pulling myself up by my bootstraps because i did it with help yeah but it was my interest in and uh demonstrated ability to work and and do these things that led to those people helping me you know mm -hmm. uh, but it was an incredibly difficult uh yeah shockingly difficult journey i couldn't add fractions i didn't know how to write anything uh wow. so it was a really big mountain to climb yeah 
I can really imagine, though, that the very same traits that lifted you out of that difficult early life situation and propelled you to medical school were traits that contributed to your addiction, right? This idea that I can will myself out of this, I can handle it, I can manage, I can figure it out. Man, you you hit the nail on the head. I remember I got my first prescription. I uh, didn't have to go to clinic or anything. You know, it was a friend of mine at the hospital, pain guy. And uh, it was for 360 Norco. And I remember I was, I, I, did, I couldn't believe the size of the bottle because I just thought I was picking up 30, you know, or something. Right. Like and the, oh, what's in there, you know, in the bag. And I brought it in the locker room and I look at it, 360 of them. And I thought, I actually thought, I remember thinking this, man, you better watch out. There's a lot of pills. You can get addicted. And I thought, nah, I can manage it. I actually, I, I, I BS myself, you know, enough, yeah. but I actually kind of believed it. You know, right. Sure. Because until that point, I had nailed everything. I was right. controlling the entire narrative in my life. Right. And it was really quite remarkable that I found something that brought me to my knees. Yeah. And every day in the closet, counting the delauded pills mm. and promising myself I would mm. just take seven today mm. and failing every single day. Mm. And it was, as it says in the book, the big book, a state of incomprehensible demoralization, you know, yeah, and that, right. I can't think of a term that better describes the yeah, hell of right, being in that position. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know, that really captures for me that moment when people really um, begin recovery. It's mm -hmm. that moment of the profoundest humility, this recognition yeah. that like, like my best thinking got me here and, <laughs> yes. and, and I can't get myself out, you know, like no, I like, couldn't. Like, yeah. Right. I, I was categorically unable to, I had to go right. and be admitted. There's no question right. about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I appreciate you asking about that, but you know, I want to really emphasize that's sort of an, I mean, it's, it's extreme, but it's not because it's so common. Right. <laughs> uh, but even your, uh, brief flirting with the romance novel thing it's mm -hmm. it's really all the same process and you emphasize yeah. that so beautifully in the book uh and how it's affecting us all and it, it affords a lot of compassion for all of us as human beings you know the struggles that we face with this overabundance you know that we're yeah. dealing with yeah one of the things i liked <laughs> among many about your book was the acronym dopamine mm -hmm. and if you wouldn't mind uh, you don't have to explain that. I, I'd actually like you, you you tell the story of the nine medical students you were teaching. And yes. there was one odd one out. Right? Yes. And if you could tell us about that story and how uh, you can go through the dopamine acronym or whatever way you want, but just yeah. relate how it caused you to be aware of the consequences of your reading romance novels and how it was starting to affect your relationships and everything. Right, right. So yeah, so I was teaching a class, you know, uh, because I'm the supposed expert. And uh, there was, we were sort of an odd number. So I had to be the patient for one of these wonderful psychiatry residents. And, you know, the he was his job was to ask me, was there a behavior, you know, that you that you want to change something that you feel is unmanageable, or you do in excess. And so I sort of racked my brain like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess my late night reading habit, I did not share with him that it was romance novels. That would have been far too humiliating. <laughs> so I have a late night, you know, fiction, whatever. And he said, um, 
Okay. And, and so, and, and, you know, the dopamine acronym is basically a framework for entering into con these conversations, but also a framework for self-help if somebody's trying to work on this themselves. Yes. And these, it's really good for these, for people like me that needed to go in, into an institution, right. not going to help. Generally. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, later Very, on, it might. Important to qualify that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, for, I guess, the softer Addictions, right. if you will. I, I think it's extraordinarily valuable. So I didn't mean to interrupt there, but yeah. Yeah, no, not at all. So the D stands for data. And this is where we try to figure out, you know, what am I using, how much and how often? So of course I knew I was, you know, reading romance novels. It's not like I didn't know I was reading romance novels, but really I had never taken the time to focus on the behavior because I didn't want to focus on the behavior because if I right. focused on it, I would have had to like, you know, deal with all the other uh, repercussions of that. But this conversation forced me to focus. I said romance novels. And then typically what you would do is you would try to quantify that, how much and how often. Um, you know, I don't know that he and I did that particularly, but it was basically every single day. Um, and not even just every single day. Like I was, we went on a family vacation with another family and I basically didn't participate in the family vacation. I, I hid in the room and read romance novels all day. Um, at one point I was taking romance novels to work and, you know, reading in like the 10 minutes between patients, you know, it got to a, a point where my romance reading escape fantasy world was more important to me than my real life. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to be in that world and I didn't want to really, you know, I wasn't spending quality time with my husband or my children, you know, th people I really value there at the center of my life, but they went to the periphery. Um, the O stands for objectives, sort of why, you know, asking patients, why do you do that behavior? And for, and he asked me that and I said, well, cause just cause it's, it gets me out of my own head. It's like this great escape, kind of the reward at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, the P stands for problems associated with use. And I was able to say to him, yeah, I'm not spending the quality time that I would like with my kids and my husband because I'm reading too much. I'm also reading late into the night. So I'm really tired the next day. I'm not fresh for work or for my family. There were a lot of other, you know, reading in a way that was discordant with my values. I didn't go into that, but basically I progressed from like, you know, teenage vampire romance novels to Frank Erotica. I was reading really potent graphic sexual stuff. I wouldn't even finish the book. I had a Kindle. As soon as I got to the climactic part, I went on to the next one. It, it was uh -huh. crazy. It had taken over. Um, and then the A stands for abstinence, and that's where we invite patients to um, try 30 days of not using their drug of choice. And we warn them that they're going to feel worse before they feel better because that pleasure pain balance will slam to the side of pain. They'll experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal, but if they can just go more days without using, they're eventually going to come out of that dark tunnel and feel better. It's hard to believe when you're in it, but after, if you can get through about 10 <laughs> days, you come out of it and it's like you get your brain back. Yeah, so that's, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. That's amazing, right? Uh, yeah. The the uh, the dopa mean the M stands for mindfulness. It's a great opportunity to learn our brains because we can't reach for that escape substance or behavior. The I stands for insight. That's where we have this aha moment, usually after four weeks of abstinence, where we really recognize the way that our behavior has adversely impacted our lives, which is very difficult to do when we're in it and we're chasing dopamine. We just- When you're in the weeds of it, if you, yeah, you cannot you see, see the impact. Yes. That's right. Yeah. You can't see yeah. true cause and effect. 
The, um, the N stands for next steps. After people have done the dopamine fast, you talk about the pros and cons, what was good, what was bad. And then it's a matter of, well, what do you want to do next? Do you want to go back to using romance novels or you want to abstain? I decided, I did this on my own for myself and I decided that um, I wanted to go back to reading romance novels. I felt like it was fine. And I actually binged all weekend long, went to work that Monday bleary eyed and realized, wow, that was crazy. I clearly cannot go back to reading romance novels, at least not for a longer right. period. So then I committed to a year of absence. That's just what I did for me, um, and that ended up working. But interestingly, after a year of abstinence, I I then went back to reading romance novels, and they didn't work. So it was like I had burned yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And and you know that, like it's like oh, yeah. it's the wanting without the liking, that euphoric recall where you remember how good it was, but when you try it, it doesn't work anymore. You know, I had a recent experience of that with narcotics because I've had both shoulders replaced over the last six months. And I had narcotics briefly after uh, the surgeries. And yeah. it was, it was, ugh. I mean, yeah. truly. Right. right. I, I don't, I don't know what I saw. In yeah. This stuff. Well, I think what happened, the brain changes and you only get the downside, right? So that with repeated exposure, that initial, initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. And at some point you get no pleasure deviation. You just get the after response. Yeah. It was miserable. Yeah. yeah so, really. um, and, you know, I, I, I find myself struggling, uh, this is a little embarrassing to admit, but with YouTube. Oh, I yeah. Mean, I am so drawn to yeah. that. I mean, it's a tremendous platform for learning. But, I mean, I have found myself going to YouTube, you know, as a source of distraction. You know, there's no question about it. It know? cannot be underestimated how potent short-form video is for our brains. Incredibly oh, yeah. reinforcing yeah. to the point where I really think we need to classify it as a drug. I really, really, we do. And, you know, if we can use it in moderation, great. But we've got to put mechanisms in place and we can't use daily and we have to respect the ways that it's making our kids' brains, you know, more vulnerable to this process. Yes, probably. sure is true. Huge problem, yeah. Me too, I, I especially like now, recently it's been like certain sports videos, and then it's like, oh, but I'm watching sports. You can always rationalize it, but then it's like daily sports. And then it's like, while I'm brushing my teeth at night, I'm watching YouTube. Yes. It's like, really? Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. And the short ones, the YouTube shorts, I found myself flipping from one to the next. Yes. And I, right. I, I caught myself, look at what you're doing. You know, right. And the, you're, yeah. you're sitting here immersed in this. And right. each one's a hit, a hit, right. a hit. It is. And then it's impossible to disengage because as soon as you try to disengage, you know you're going to get a dopamine free fall. Yes. Right? You're going to be <laughs> in that dopamine true. deficit state. It's so hard. It's so hard. And that's just a small thing in a sense, yeah. but it's not small. You know? Right. That's it right. It seems small. I'd like to move on now and talk, if we can, about work addiction. Yeah. And, and that, and I, just to frame it up a little bit, I, I was uh, amazed by a study of Vietnam veterans who, if I remember correctly, 30% uh, returning were addicted to heroin. And 5% uh, of them relapsed. So the majority did not relapse. They did not go to treatment. Uh, and the thinking is they were out of the horrible environment that they were in. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier in the conversation. And to some extent, I felt like my work was my Vietnam, mm. uh, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, yeah. And I, and I wonder if that's true currently for so many of our uh, colleagues in medicine. 
because in the people that I coach, uh, when I give talks, the ubiquitous nature of this suffering at work, either there's always the administrative things and all that stuff, but there's also how we're treated as human beings at work in the world of medicine and the deep individuality and uh, lack of connection that can occur in our world, which I think is really profound. Yeah. Uh, you know, it sets us up for problems. What are, what are your thoughts around all of that? And am I, am I on the right track here? Oh yeah. I... Yeah. So a couple of things. Well, first of all, you know, work that is alienating work that is divorced from the meaning of the work itself. Mm -hmm. um, what, what happens is that we make it through the day um, often only by knowing that when our work is over, we can reward ourselves with some kind right. of Right. Whether it's alcohol or cannabis or, you know, a Netflix binge, it's this work hard, play hard mentality. So we're taking that pleasure pain balance and we're slamming down on the pain side, but not good, healthy pain. It's it's too much pain. It's very stressful pain. And then we're slamming down on the pleasure side with intoxicants. And we're basically completely stressing our brains out, uh, you know, with this sort of seesaw, extreme seesaw scenario. Um and it's it's terrible, but the 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 pain of work often drives the addictive behaviors. That's what and I was going to ask you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I will get a lot of patients. Oftentimes, they're you know high functioning people in these intense jobs, and they want to stop their addiction, but they don't want to change anything about their work life. And I just say, you know what? That's probably not going to be possible for you to be able to get into and maintain recovery you are going to have to change the way that you orient on work. This level of stress, this lack of self-care, uh, the, the, the kind of intensity, even if they say they love it, if it's too much, there's no way that you can calm your brain and body down from that without turning to some kind of intoxicant. Yeah. So I think that part of finding that balance is also not pressing too hard on either side because otherwise you just get this major seesaw action. Yeah, it's something I emphasize in people that I work with, um, that it is your responsibility to ensure that you're doing the things that work that, to the extent possible that give you the most meaning. Yes, that's right. And one of the things that I failed at was the ability to say no to things mm -hmm. <clears throat> that kept me on the, on the, uh, the mouse running wheel. Yes, right. Yeah. And that was a serious problem. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I think that contributes. But you also alluded to another side of work that can be problematic, and that is truly enjoying flow and what you're doing and how that right. can mm -hmm. kind of break things down. Do you want to just quickly uh, elaborate on yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I can never pronounce his name, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, can I? His, you know, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. He wrote this great paper on flow. Mikhail. Right. Mikhail, I think Mikhail C. Name. Mikhail yeah. C. Um, he wrote this great paper on flow, which was which was just beautifully written and I think captured a phenomenon that a lot of people could relate to, that when you get into a certain creative mental state uh, that involves doing some kind of cognitive slash emotional process that's perfectly suited to your talents and uh, your, you know, your environment, you get into what's called a flow state, clearly a dopaminergic state, just... Mm -hmm. And generally, generally, I think he meant it in the, the most positive way. 
And, and it, it is a good thing to cultivate in general. But the problem is that work itself has become drugified now, such that you've got so many more reinforcers, whether it's stock options or bonuses or social media acclaim or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and how many forms of work that, what again, what was originally an innocent and positive thing, that is the flow state, has now become, you know, has a lot more potential for being a drug. For example, we talked about the four things, potency, quantity, access, novelty. Well, let's just take quantity when it comes to work and access. We now have devices that allow us to work from anywhere, anytime. Yes, yes. And so now we're not giving our brains a... So even if we enjoy our work and it's perfectly suited to our gifts and talents and motivations and we get into the flow state... Like even the flow state, you need a break break from the flow state. You know, let, let your brain rest and do other things. But now people are going, you know, trying to maintain that flow state, and they're able to because of the technology and all of this. So we're, we're we've really drugified work, and we've taken things something that was really positive, like the flow state, and turned it into something that has the net potential to be addictive. And we've done that with a lot of things. For example. Reading was mine, right? Like we, everybody thinks of reading as, oh, that's so healthy. My kid needs to read more books. But now with the way that they've drugified, especially fiction, um, you know, it's easy to get into a kind of a reading addiction. Or yeah. games have become drugified. You know, online chess was huge during the pandemic. They got yeah. shorter and shorter uh, segments, making it more and more reinforcing. Exercise is something that is typically hard to do and generally we think of as healthy. And it is healthy unless you do it too much, but we've drugified work as well. So all of these things, it's just, it's just hard because whatever we do now that is a positive source of dopamine has the potential to be done in excess because of the technology. Yeah. Okay, we're getting close. We still have a little bit of time yet, but uh, you also talk about deliberately, and you alluded to exercise, deliberately pressing on the pain side as a, as a means of a better way of living and right. right and and with things like exercise can you talk about that and and then hormesis and what that right. entails and cold right. therapy and all that yeah so when you, if you think back to the pleasure pain balance and those gremlins the gremlins are essentially agnostic to whatever the initial stimulus is so if we press on the pleasure side they will try to balance us out by going on the pain side if we intentionally press on the pain side they will go on the pleasure side And this refers to the ways that we can intentionally pursue hard things as a way to reset our dopamine balance to the side of pleasure. That is to say, a way of getting our dopamine indirectly by paying for it up front, which is a potentially more long-lasting way to get dopamine and more resistant to the problem of addiction. Now, of course, I just talked about exercise addiction. So you can press too hard and too fast, self-cutting, all of that end up depleting our neurotransmitters and not being a repeatable, sustainable source of dopamine. But the science of hormesis is all about using mild to moderate toxic or noxious stimuli to get just the right right amount of dopamine so that we can live healthy lives. And the way that works is that hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And what it refers to is that when we expose an organism, including ourselves, to just the right size amount of pain or other toxic stimuli, 
We um, trigger the body to sense injury, which in turn leads to upregulation of our own self-healing mechanisms, including upregulation of dopamine, serotonin, our endogenous opioids, our endogenous cannabinoids, et cetera. So we can use this knowledge, you know, to uh, every day do things that are hard. And this can be physically challenging things like exercise or ice cold water bath immersion, or mentally challenging things, things like saying we're sorry, telling the truth. Yes, yes, um, yes. All those things that are hard, you know, forcing ourselves to order our coffee by talking to the barista and not just using the app, you know, like pushing beyond our comfort zone on a regular basis to try to keep that uh, pleasure pain equilibrium. And it's important to note saying hi to the barista, saying hi to their, knowing their name, that kind of thing. <clears throat> These generate chemicals that make you feel good. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly. So it's not like just be nice. I mean, if you want to help yourself feel good, these are things you can do because they generate right. the very same chemicals. And an astounding number, just uh, on the cold therapy or cold plunge, the percent elevation of dopamine and norepinephrine with that. Do you, do you, do you want to just tell us what that is? Yeah, so yeah, experiments where um, people were you know immersed in an ice cold water bath over the course of, I think it was an hour. And then they measured dopamine levels and they found that initially dopamine levels did not go up because you're essentially exposing your, your body to a cold toxin. But over the latter half of that, uh, that ice cold water bath, I think dopamine levels increased 300%. Uh, norepinephrine was really like incredible. 150%. Yeah. And what was so incredible about that experiment was that those dopamine levels remained elevated for hours afterwards before going back down to baseline levels of dopamine firing because we're always releasing dopamine at a baseline tonic level. And what's really exciting is that those elevated periods of dopamine uh, were achieved without ever going into a dopamine deficit state. Unlike an intoxicant where you get a sudden upward spike of dopamine as soon as you ingest it, followed by dopamine free fall, even while you're still mm -hmm. ingesting it, mm -hmm. and those levels then go not to baseline, but below baseline, then you're in that dopamine deficit state. And then with repeated use, you essentially go lower and lower so that that initial dopamine spike gets weaker and shorter, the lower gets stronger and longer, and you kind of then settle in a chronic dopamine deficit state, which is yeah. addiction. You know, I've, I've been doing the cold water thing for a while now, and honestly, it's the closest. I mean, after I do that, I feel one of the things I loved about narcotics uh, was the calm that I felt. You know, yeah. I was finally the tension, mm -hmm. the constant tension that I never thought I was tense. But when I took narcotics, I just felt like wonderfully calm and yeah. relaxed. I, I right. don't know what else. And the same thing happens after the cold. It's really, that is so cool. I love yeah. it that you found yeah. something that yeah. does that for really you. That's remarkable. healthier. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's great. Now, last two things. And this is a complicated one and one I have very deep personal experience with. And, and that is, as, as our colleagues in medicine, when you suspect somebody's struggling with addiction, how do you approach that very challenging circumstance? What's, what's, mm -hmm. And you, you talk about uh, compassionate accountability. Right. And that's something I didn't experience. Uh, and, you know, there's another uh, story that was presented at the American College of Surgeons of uh, a, a liver transplant surgeon who told his chair that he was depressed and he was told to go home and 
basically figure it out. And they found him hanging from a rope three days oh, later, gosh. you know, and I was told to leave work immediately, you know, appropriately. There's, I right. take, I have no, there's, it's appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and I hadn't had any consequences with patients or anything like that, but yet it was just, you're done, leave, uh, and let us know when you got this figured out. And honestly, uh, it's a miracle. I didn't kill myself mm-hmm. where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I got through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are your, what are your thoughts about that? I, I'd love the term compassionate accountability. Yeah. So, you know, what I say to my residents, and I really believe this to be the truth, uh, is that we make this so much more complicated than it is. Having the disease of addiction is not any different than having cancer. If we found out that a colleague had cancer, we would go up to them and say, I have heard about your diagnosis. I am so sorry. We would give them a big hug. We would say, is there anything I can do to help? Do the same thing with addiction. You know, mm-hmm. it's exactly mm-hmm. the same kind of problem. Um, now, of course, if you're worried about that person being impaired, so work impairment, so a lot of times people think that work impairment and addiction are synonymous, and they're not. Uh, I know a lot of people, including doctors, who have addiction who have never, ever been impaired at work. They've mm-hmm. been able to separate those those things. Obviously, there are some who have been impaired at work, who have stolen drugs from work, et cetera. Um, so that, you know, those, they can overlap. But even in that case, it's still just conceptualized as a disease process. You know, express your sincere empathy, give people a hug, ask what you can do to help. It may be that part of their recovery process means that they can't work for a while or be in the work environment for a while. Send them a card, send them some flowers. If they get into recovery, congratulate them on, you know, on that and how happy you are for them. And if they relapse, treat it the way you would if somebody who had been treated for cancer had a recurrence of their cancer. Uh-huh. They come in and say, oh, my, my, my cancer came back. What is our instinctive response to my cancer came back? It's, oh, my gosh, I'm so oh sorry. My gosh, yeah. I'm yeah. so sorry to hear that. When I have patients in clinic who say I've been using again, Dr. Lemus, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's that's devastating. It's not hard. (laughs) No, it's not hard. uh, But people aren't used to dealing with people with addiction either, you know. So, but I remember if if anyone had just called and said those words, how different my uh, emotional state would have been. It would have been really profound. And you still would have had to go to rehab, you know. That wouldn't have changed anything. And I would have still held myself accountable for all the stuff. You still had to, right, you still had to not be at work for a while and go to rehab and do all the whatever crap license things that maybe you had to do. All the stuff, oh yeah. But but still, when people walk with you empathically and recognize, it's like you didn't intend to hurt anybody and you maybe didn't even hurt anybody except yourself, you know. Yeah, thank you. Now, the last thing, and this is on a somewhat my own little personal thing, is the word addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's a noun. It refers to people, places, and things. And one of the big struggles I had at Hazel and, and then subsequently in the meetings was referring to myself as an addict because I had seen myself as such a much more complex individual. I was a very good father. You know, I was very proud of how I took care of my children, yeah. uh, you know, husband. And I, you know, I, I was a surgeon. I contributed greatly to, you know, people's lives and stuff. And so that was a really hard thing for me to accept. And I refused to do it. I mean, I did it 
as much mm -hmm. as I needed to within the meetings. Mm -hmm. But what are your thoughts around that uh, that issue? And and I, you know, I one of the my colleagues, and this is where it hurts so much, referred to me after I got out of Hazelon. Oh, he's Mattis is just just an addict, mm. you know. And and that that was that was hurtful. I mean, it hurt yeah. a lot when I heard yeah. that. So I wanted to get yeah. your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you for sharing your perspective and your experience. I think addicts can be a very pejorative word. You clearly experienced it that way. You also experienced it as like an over way oversimplification of all of who you are. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in that sense, not helpful at all. However, you know, for example, in the context of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12 step groups, sometimes identifying, self-identifying as an alcoholic addict can be an important and helpful identity shift for people to help them recognize, you know, I am, I really the do deal. have this problem. I the really deal. do have this problem, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. I need to really embrace that this is part of who I am. It brings me down to earth. It connects me to the other people who are here for the same problem. Mm -hmm. And um, I can, I can be all of who I am and still own this problem. So I, I think it can cut both ways, you know, where it can be um, a kind of a sort of, you know, trying to whittle someone down into a really small box that's not helpful, or it can be a way to kind of open things up for people and have them embrace this thing that they've been hiding from themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree with that. But for me personally, and I don't yeah. have a problem with others doing that, of course. Right. For me personally, it was it was a challenge. Uh, in that world. Yeah. And that's why in the medical world, we try not to use that term. We're trying, we try to use what patient centered language. This is a person with an addictive disorder rather than an addict. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anna, <clears throat> again, uh, the huge thanks for the work you're doing, uh, for this incredible book, uh, and, um, you know, just, for your warmth and your your humanity, uh, especially for that, oh, it shines through in every interview, everything that you do, your book. Uh, it's really remarkable. You're you're really I I consider you to be kind of a prophet around these things. It's, oh. it's, it's at that level, and I'm really serious. So oh well, thank you so much. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I'm very moved by your transparency. So hard in the medical profession to be out about mm -hmm. um, you know having mm -hmm. addiction and what you've gone through and it whatever i may be doing to help when when people like you come forward and are transparent and open and share their stories it is so impactful and so healing for so many people so thank you for that yeah thank you well where can people find you if they want to look you up so I'm not on social media um, because I wouldn't be able to handle <laughs> <Very good>. it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, the, the book, uh, the book is sort of wherever books are sold. Yeah, good. All right. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.